Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Sports has long been intertwined with racial politics. Being a celebrity, being an NBA player, don't exclude me from no conversation at all. First and foremost, I'm a black man, and I'm a member of this community, and I grew up on this soil. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll talk about the impact of demonstrations on pro sports. And the history of female husbands in British and American press. The idea that someone assigned female might want to live as a man, well, that was, it wasn't respectable. It wasn't celebrated, but it also wasn't the worst thing. It could be tolerated. How attitudes toward female husbands changed over time. Plus, what if your landlord tries to kick you out by turning off your utilities? I was just curious. I heard you saying you shut off my hot water and my gas. I put it in my name last night, so that's legal. Well, it's going off again today. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. Protests continue across New England over racism and police violence. Some local and state governments are taking note as advocates call for reforms. In Boston, Massachusetts, and Hartford, Connecticut, a few members of city council are considering decreasing funding to police departments. And Vermont's attorney general is urging the state's legislature to consider adopting new standards for police use of force. Athletes in the region are also getting involved, like Patriots cornerback Stefan Gilmore and Celtic center Vincent Poirier. Sports have always been intertwined with politics. And so in our first story, WGBH Radio's Esteban Bustillos looks at how sports leagues, teams, and athletes are responding to the death of George Floyd and what's different this time around. When thousands of protesters marched from Roxbury to the State House to speak out against racism and police brutality on May 31st, there were a few familiar faces in the crowd. We got Marcus Smart and we got Vincent Poirier right there. The same way we support them every single night, they're here to support us. The two Celtics, who were at the front steps to the State House with protesters, weren't the only ones there. Their teammate Ennis Cantor was with marchers that same day. And another, Jalen Brown, led a protest in Atlanta the day before. Here's Brown speaking on his Instagram accounts. Being a celebrity, being an NBA player, don't exclude me from no conversation at all. First and foremost, I'm a black man, and I'm a member of this community, and I grew up on this soil. As the country mourns the killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and other black Americans, professional athletes have been voicing their discontent with the racial status quo. And it's not just the Celtics. Players around the NBA and other pro leagues, both locally and nationally, have been using their voices to call for change. Celtics coach Brad Stevens spoke to reporters last week and praised what his team's players were doing. We want them to, you know, stand for what they believe in and, and, and 
we want to be supportive of that. Players, coaches, teams, the Celtics, Red Sox, Patriots, and Bruins have all issued statements, and even leagues are showing support for protests. But not all of it came without struggle. After multiple major NFL stars criticized the league for not being more forthright about its stance against racism and police brutality, Commissioner Roger Goodell issued his most outspoken statement to date. Without black players, there would be no National Football League. And the protests around the country are emblematic of the centuries of silence, inequality, and oppression of black players, coaches, fans, and staff. But the support is coming at a time when that's the norm, even for businesses that historically may have been quiet about racial issues. It's in their best interest business-wise to adopt that type of posture. For Joseph Cooper, a professor at UMass Boston who studies sports and race, what really matters is what happens when protests aren't convenient and when institutions are challenged to do the work behind the words of a Twitter statement calling for equality. If you're serious, you're going to partner with organizations that are doing the real work, even if it's not mainstream. Sports shape how we think about protests. Just ask anyone telling police to take a knee as banished NFL player Colin Kaepernick did. But what may matter most is what happens when the streets are quiet and sports leagues and franchises have a chance to commit to real change. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Esteban Bustillos. This is the sound of a protest in Vermont on June 7th, one of many demonstrations that happened around New England. Trevon Groves had this message for white activists. I don't want people who are here for the clout because it's the cool thing to do. Because on May 24th, before George Floyd was killed, were you guys ready to stand up and protest for us then? Because think about this. Every day, me and my brothers and sisters, we wake up and and fight this battle every single day. We deal with this every day. Today, we'd like to hear from you, our listeners. What can you be doing right now, personally, to help dismantle systemic racism? And what reforms would you like to see? Share your thoughts by leaving a comment at 860-275-7595. Again, that's 860-275-7595. Or you can email us at next at ctpublic.org. One more time, that's next at ctpublic.org. And we look forward to hearing from you. Now we head to Maine and an environmental story years in the making. On June 5th, President Donald Trump visited a Maine manufacturer making swabs for COVID-19 tests. While in the state, Trump signed a proclamation he says will remove restrictions on a marine national monument in the Atlantic Ocean. The monument is almost 5,000 square miles of submerged canyons and mountains, more than 100 miles off the coast of Cape Cod, and is prized for its biodiversity. It's been closed to most commercial fishing since 2016, when President Barack Obama designated it as a conservation area. Now, a legal battle is expected. Maine Public Radio's Fred Bever reports. Obama established the Northeast Canyons and Seamounts Marine National Monument in 2016. It's a 5,000-square-mile area within a much larger underwater formation, which plays a big role in commercial fisheries based in New England. At the Bangor Roundtable, with several representatives of Maine and Massachusetts fishing interests, as well as former Republican Governor Paula Page, 
Trump said he would take the no fishing sign down from the monument's waters. And we're going to send our fishermen out there. You're going to go fishing in that area now that you haven't seen for a long time. Lobstermen and seafood producers, I want to just congratulate you. Obama actually provided a seven-year exemption for lobster and crab fishermen, and conservationists say there are no main vessels fishing now in the area, which is a very long distance from the state. Trump's action would likely benefit tuna and swordfish boats the most. But Kristen Porter, a cutler fisherman and president of the Maine Lobstermen's Association, told Trump the monument's designation nonetheless harmed his industry. The Obama administration did this well, he's the done, very you know, la- in the he's last... Done, he's done Maine a tremendous disservice, I can tell you. Just from a common sense standpoint, how could you let a thing like this happen? This created poor policy. It hurt the fishermen. And we really worry about the precedent it sets, that you can close large areas of ocean and put all the rest of us who fish for different things in smaller and smaller boxes. But it it represents only 1.5% of our federal waters in the Atlantic, which leaves all the rest of this region for commercial fishing. Peter Oster is a scientist at the Mystic Aquarium in Connecticut who has studied the monument area for decades, both diving and with unmanned submersibles. He says the area is unique because of its confluence of geographic features, canyons and mountains, that provide species diversity, abundant feeding grounds, and rare, pristine, deep-sea coral forests. One of the benefits of the, of the monument, besides knowing that there's a, there's a place that represents the natural heritage of our country, is that an area that's not impacted by commercial-scale human activities, a place that we can use to judge the effects of all these other things that we do, Trump called on the fishing interests that joined him in the Bangor hangar to be careful with the resource and to continue good conservation practices. But even before he signed his new proclamation, a host of environmental groups were lining up against it. Sean Mahoney directs the state of Maine's chapter of the Conservation Law Foundation. The president has no authority to do this. The president, the executive branch, has authority under the Antiquities Act to create national monuments. The only body that has authority to change the boundaries, the conditions, the terms that govern a national monument is the Congress. Mahoney's group and several others are already promising lawsuits. That was Maine Public Radio's Fred Bever. The coronavirus pandemic has changed the way many of us do our jobs, including in public radio. Our reporters haven't been able to get out and record your voices as much as usual. So we've been asking people to step in for us, to record their own lives and share how daily life has been interrupted in big and small ways. Today, New Hampshire Public Radio brings us the story of Enna Grazier, a woman trying to excel at two things she loves raising her sons, and running a chocolate business in Exeter, New Hampshire. That's enough shower. Okay. Coffee's ready. My name is Anna Grazier. I live with my husband, Matt, and our two teenage sons. They're 14 and 16 years old, and I am a chocolate maker. 
We have spent the last two months of the pandemic actually building a new chocolate factory. For us, we've invested everything we have and then some into this chocolate business. And we can't afford to take two months off because it's not like we can go back to a, a job that's still there. Okay, I just sent money for the cabinet plan. Oh my gosh, streaker. The remote learning has been a struggle for all of us. And it's been, well, it's been hard for both of my sons to manage the tasks and the, the overwhelm, the schedule. There is no routine. Do you know what you have to do for science? Yeah. What? I spend a couple hours a week at the beginning and at the end of the week, generally, with, with the boys. One of our sons has ADD, and he's very intelligent, very, very smart kid, but he needs support. So 12 plus 12 would be 24 times 17, or 17 plus 17 is 34 times 12. They both should equal... 204 square centimeters, right? Um, is this the math that was due earlier this week? I don't know. I'm just doing whatever it says. It's, it's okay. You're, do, you, you're off to a great start now that you've figured out this problem. Okay? So. I'm just freaking out. Don't I'm freak out. One question at a time. Okay? One question at a time. Everyone else knows how to manage this stuff. It makes no sense to me. You mean they know how to manage the time or the the assignments? <laughs> work. Yeah, yeah, they know. It doesn't make any sense to me. Oh, sweetie. If you look at my grades, even you can tell. The second I got out of school and I'm stuck at home, everything just went down and nothing works anymore. Quarantine ruined my high school already. It's It's one year out of high school. Oh, God, I feel totally inadequate as a parent. I know that I'm capable of doing home-based learning, and I could uh, have a lot of fun with it (laughs) if I had the time. And the, and the resources to not have, you know, financial worries and concerns. Uh, but I don't, and it, it doesn't feel fair to my kids. I am worried about my kids um, paying for everything, <laughs> everything. Maybe if things stay shut down for a month um, and if more people lose jobs, they are not gonna buy something as luxurious as a fine bar of chocolate. So it's Tuesday, April 21st at 7.12 p.m. Uh, I just ordered pizza for dinner. Didn't want to, but it is what it is. Boys and I ate half, and now I'm taking the other half to Matt, who is at the new shop putting the first coat of uh, beautiful final paint on the walls. So I can't wait to see it. Pizza. Oh, it's going to be dark. 
Yeah, but you'll be surprised. You gotta wait till we get the floor in. I know, the bright floor, all and the, the silver The bright floor, the machines. bright ceiling, and all the machines, it's gonna disappear. It's gonna, yeah, it's gonna look nice. Yeah. I, I love it. Yeah, Building a chocolate factory at all is kind of a crazy idea during any time. Who builds a chocolate factory? And then to build it or rebuild it during a time when we're already feeling like we've lost our footing because of the pandemic. Nobody knows what it's going to look like. You going to hang out with me? No, we'll need some attention. I have to go home and help him map out his schoolwork for tomorrow. Poor kid. He was bummed that I was even leaving to bring you pizza. Oh, he is struggling. Yeah. He wants family time. Oh, I, I know. asked this morning, he and I planned to go on a walk when I got home from work, but it was pouring rain. I told him, I said, I can't do anything till the factory gets set up in here next week. I said, we got another week to go. And then we can take time. I do think what I'm doing is worth it because it's a, an amazing business and it feels a little bit selfish, but at the same time, if, that, if I'm not happy... I don't know how I can bring happiness to our family. Turn a little waste into something useful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's easy to clean if we, some for some reason, get chocolate on the ceiling. Oh gosh, <laughs> that'll never happen. <laughs> I feel like it will somehow. <laughs> so I'm, ex- you know, I'm hoping that you guys come in here and learn how to make really good coffees. And then you guys can have a part-time oh, job. I'll teach you how to use the espresso machine so you can make your mocha. You can run the bar. Mm. Making chocolate, this endeavor, it gives me a kind of fulfillment that I've not felt before with other work endeavors. I think I'm doing what I should be doing. I hope my kids discover that sooner than I did. <laughs> Um, I, I hope that maybe with all of the struggle that they've experienced and also witnessed during these past months and this larger period in our country, I hope that, if anything, that helps them understand what's, what's important to them and what they want to contribute Okay, back to homework. Yeah. Homework. Homework. Focus. I'm going to do Japanese. Okay, what about science? I know you don't feel like watching this two and a half hour movie. I'm just going to Google the answers because I got no reason to sit through a two and a half hour movie when I can do it in 20 minutes. At least let the movie run in the background while you Google. Sounds That was Anna Grazier and her family in Exeter, New Hampshire. The story was produced by New Hampshire Public Radio's Sarah Gibson. After the break, when evictions hearings were postponed during the pandemic, some landlords in Rhode Island resorted to turning off utilities to get their tenants to leave. 
and we'll learn about female husbands, a historical description for people assigned female at birth who lived as men. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. When Rhode Island courts put eviction hearings on hold in mid-March in response to the pandemic, lawyers saw a big spike in complaints of landlords pushing tenants out without going through the district court. According to Rhode Island Legal Services, calls reporting what are known as self-help evictions more than tripled. The economic downturn has both landlords and tenants struggling to make ends meet. For renters living in already unstable situations, the disruption can put them at the brink of homelessness. Sophia Rudin reports for the Public's Radio. Brandon Bradley was job hunting in Tennessee a few weeks ago when he got a text from his landlord's daughter. It read, Brandon, my husband said you need to get your stuff out by tomorrow, or he will put it in storage for you in the garage. The power and gas will be shut tomorrow. Brandon and his mom ran back to their hotel, threw everything into the car, and immediately drove back to Rhode Island. When he got home, his power was out. They turned off the breakers, because the power was in their name. He flipped the breakers back on and recorded a video of the stove's clock flashing. I now put the power in my name. I just talked to National Grid. So yeah, they turned it off again. It's going to be hell to pay. Brandon moved into this apartment last year. The lease was in his friend's name. But when his friend moved out in March, his landlord, Suzanne Silva, said he could stay for a couple months. Brandon says at that point he was planning to leave. He works as a car mechanic and was thinking of transferring to a shop in Tennessee. But then the coronavirus hit. Brandon says his hours at work were cut. The job in Tennessee fell through. And his beloved truck broke down. Now he can't afford to move. But his landlord and her family want him out. The day after they flipped the breakers off, he confronted Suzanne's daughter, Cheryl, in the stairwell of the two-story house. I was just curious. I heard you saying you shut off my hot water and my gas. I put it in my name last night, so that's legal. Well, it's going off again today. Well, it's not because yeah, the police will be here. Yes, so, I am. I'm not going to argue with you. My husband already told you what it's like. Everything's getting shut off tonight. End of story. At this point, the Lincoln police had already come to the house once and responded to multiple phone calls. The next day, Brandon went to district court to file for a temporary restraining order. The judge granted his request, and Suzanne and Cheryl were both served. Hi, I'm from the sheriff's department. I'm looking for Suzanne or Cheryl. I'm Suzanne. All right. It says over here, power, gas, heat, water, hot water. You have to turn all that stuff back on for the judge, for the court, okay? 
I called Suzanne and Cheryl. Cheryl didn't want to talk with me, but she told me they asked Brandon to leave in mid-April and that he's squatting in the apartment. I talked to Suzanne. So Brandon said that your daughter and son-in-law turned off his power to try and get him to move out. Is that true? Well, we thought it would, but it didn't work. Trying to get someone to move out by turning off their power is known as a self-help eviction, says Stephen Flores, managing attorney of the Rhode Island Legal Services Housing Law Center. When I hear, you know, I'm cutting the power to get this person to leave, or when I hear um, I'm going to tell this tenant that, you know, as soon as they uh, leave, they're going to move their stuff, um, those are the red flags that say, sounds like a self-help eviction to me. Attorneys who represent low-income tenants say self-help evictions soared when the district court stopped hearing eviction cases. As the financial crisis from the pandemic grows, both landlords and tenants are facing a complicated mess. I'm 82 years old, and I don't need this baloney. Suzanne, the landlord, had been getting desperate for Brandon to move out. She relies on the income from her rental properties to pay her own bills, and she wants to move into the ground-floor apartment where Brandon is living and put the new tenant in her second-floor apartment. It's making me a wreck. I said to my daughter, I'm going to be back in the hospital because I've been diabetic for 45 years, and I've had 11 cents put in my heart, so I'm not a well person. and. They're not making it better. Suzanne's gone to court to evict tenants before, and she says that's what she normally would have done when Brandon didn't move out in May, when the new tenant's lease was set to begin. He was warned in March he had to get out because it was rented. But he still didn't move, and it's like it's my fault. But my daughter told them, there's a shelter in Woonsocket. Just put all your stuff in a garage, go to the shelter, and then they'll find you a place to live. The reason for me not leaving is because I have nowhere to go at the moment. That's Brandon again. I have no family that can take me. And I've already, that was my first route to try. So I was like, worst case, I'll give them what they want and I'll have to sleep on someone's couch. Well, no, I can't. <laughs> it's just not in the cards, unfortunately. <laughs> Before the coronavirus hit, the state already had the highest eviction filing rate in the region. Melina Lodge, director of the Housing Network of Rhode Island, says the economic disruption caused by the coronavirus has put many renters at risk of being evicted. Folks aren't getting any income right now and are falling behind on their rent, and they're very nervous about their ability to stay housed. Um, So there's a lot of fear right now, I think. The state's $1.5 million COVID-19 relief fund for renters was quickly depleted, with only a fraction of the 4,200 applicants getting assistance. The governor in late May announced another $5 million for the program. That aid is being distributed by Crossroads Rhode Island. CEO Karen Santilli says rent relief is one of the most effective ways to help people avoid homelessness. The housing help and other resources that are coming into the state are going to be critical in helping people stay housed once these moratoriums end. So right now, we're not quite sure. We're all sort of holding our breath, and we do expect there to be an increase um, in demand for homeless services. Um 
And and that's a challenge in a state that has high housing costs and low housing availability. The district court began processing eviction cases again June 2nd, starting with the backlog of cases filed before March 17th. The court will not begin processing new eviction cases until July. When it does, many expect to see a sudden spike in eviction complaints. That number could rise further this summer as federal protections and added unemployment benefits expire. All this could mean more people unable to stay in their homes at a time when staying home is the safest possible thing to do. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Sophia Rudin. Female husbands. For nearly 200 years, this term was used to describe individuals assigned female at birth who chose to live fully as men. From the 1700s to early 1900s, the British and American press wrote about female husbands, often in a salacious and sensationalized way. When a female husband's assigned gender was revealed, they were usually detained by police and run out of town. Jen Mannion captures these lives in Female Husbands, A Trans History. It's a book that came out this spring. Jen is a historian and professor at Amherst College in Massachusetts, and they joined me to talk about their book. Jen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I I just gave a rather simplistic description of female husbands, but let's fill that out a bit. Who were female husbands historically? Well, female husbands, as you said, were people who were assigned female at birth, who for any number of reasons, usually when they were teenagers, Uh, decided to transgender and live as men. And they became female husbands because they also entered into romantic legal marriages with women. This category of female husband circulated as far as I can tell for nearly 200 years in the press, usually when such people were outed as having been assigned female at birth. So I want to zoom in on one of those accounts that you write about in the book. It's James Howe, who was the most popular female husband of the 18th century in Britain. Tell us their story. Yeah, James Howe is remarkable because there are so many records um, left behind about their life. And so James Howe, as far as we can tell, came from a poor family. And James, together with a childhood friend, um, as teenagers, really decided you know what, Let's. we want to be together, we want to build a life together. And so that's the moment when James transgender and lived as a man, and the two got legally married outside Fleet Prison in London and ran a number of taverns for decades. Uh, as far as we can tell, pillars of the community, regular churchgoers, leaders in you know local government, Uh, respected citizens by all. And so James Howe was ultimately blackmailed by somebody who claimed to have known them as a child, and James chose to reveal that they had been assigned female at birth. Um, But the response from the community in many ways was positive, which appears to be atypical for the time. Why do you think that was? James 
already had decades of friendships and respect and goodwill in the community. And so I think that's a really important part of the story. But then the other part of the story, which I think is was probably sad for James, is that they felt like in order to get people to listen and to really understand their side of the story, that they actually had to present as female. Um, and so famously, when they go to court to testify about their blackmailer, they do put on a typical attire that women wore at the time. They subjected themselves to kind of a voluntary ungendering uh, in order to be heard. And so it's definitely not a story of, you know, complete respect and acceptance that, you know, I think we wish was the case. There was a shift in how female husbands were portrayed in historical articles over time that you capture in the book. What were the big changes you observed? So in the 18th century, female husbands are written of as men. They may have been assigned female at birth, but once they transgender and legally married women, they are treated as men. And as time goes on, you see that eroded by the mid-19th century in the U.S., especially there becomes a more antagonistic mocking tone towards female husbands. And this coincides with the rise of the women's movement and feminism. And so you see the beginning of this argument that female husbands aren't men, they're not husbands, they're really women who want to be men. And so previously, we see a distinction between sex and gender, I can be assigned female at birth, but I can live as a man in society. And 100 years later, that gets collapsed. I had this question while I was reading the book, and maybe what we're talking about right now is the answer to that. But I was wondering, you know, were there ways that you found more progress in the lives and communities surrounding female husbands in the time periods you were researching than, say, the 20th century or even today? Definitely. I think the key issue here is the question around feminism and women's rights. As long as women were second-class citizens and had were really no threat um, in terms of having political power or economic independence. The idea that someone assigned female might want to live as a man, well, that was, it wasn't respectable. It wasn't celebrated, but it also was, wasn't the worst thing. It could be tolerated. And it made sense in the 19th century, because everyone knew that, you know, to live as a woman was to be someone who made terrible wages, had little autonomy, and, you know, no political voice. Once women became more of a threat in terms of making claims to equality or sameness uh, with men in these other arenas, then suddenly people who are female husbands were threatening. And you see this emerge in some of the discussion uh, in the later 19th century, that this could not be tolerated. Because as one writer said, you know, if women could choose to marry female husbands, then they might have no use uh, for men. 
to write this book, you read stories written by the press at the time and, and fictional accounts of female husbands. What was that like to to read those accounts? It was complicated. So it was so exciting just to see in old newspapers stories about people grappling with gender, resisting gender norms, uh, choosing, you know, unconventional relationships, and in some cases, same-sex desire. So on the one hand, it's just so exciting to read about people in the past who are having feelings and thoughts that I myself could relate to, um, because that's so often not the case. On the other hand, every story at least had some negative judgmental tone about the person. So in, in that way, it can be emotionally exhausting and, you know, really challenging, especially for those of us who are members of and identify with the trans community to read this constant ongoing, you know, critique and belittling of people like you or people who share some of your own feelings and experiences. And you're able to take these stories that are written in that way and bring that sort of emotion and transform them in a lot of ways into something different. Can you talk about the intentional ways you wrote differently than the accounts in the press? That's definitely uh, probably the hardest part of this book, but I feel like the most important part, the trans community and our friends and allies deserve access to our history. You know, we deserve to have the opportunity to grapple with how people thought about gender and gender nonconformity in the past, but without subjecting ourselves so much to, you know, blanket negative hostile um, language. And so my balance was to use language and methods that are trans affirming in the present as I and my community understand them. But also as a historian, I would never change an original document. Um, you know, you just don't do that and you can't do that. And so sometimes the book does quote passages um, that might be hard for some people to read. And you're also not assuming the motive for transing gender, right? And you, you made this very intentional choice to not assume gender or sexuality and use the they, them, their pronouns. Rather than do further injustice and try to guess or make up intention to fit something, um, I took the approach to say, you know what, maybe that's actually not the most important question. Um, for us to try to answer. And instead, let's try to answer all the other ones, you know, like what they did and how it was received and then how they reacted. I think one of the consequences of this is that the book tries to also open up space um, to allow for any number of contemporary people who might identify as transgender or butch or aggressive or lesbian to say, you know what, I could have been one of these people or I really relate to that. And that the specific identity category that I hold now maybe is less relevant because it's 200 years ago, it doesn't easily translate back anyway, um, which is to say that some of us who think we are really different might actually have more in common than we realize. 
Jen Mannion is a historian, author of the book Female Husbands, A Trans History, and a professor at Amherst College in Massachusetts. Thank you so much for talking about your book, Jen. Thank you so much for having me. Coming up, a small town gathers to wish a 100-year-old man a happy birthday from their cars. Plus, making a home for native bees. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Birthday parties during the pandemic can look a few different ways. You could have a cake alone or with immediate family. You could have a Zoom party or maybe take part in a car parade. The car option was the choice in Moncton, Vermont, where hundreds of people paraded by Roger Lane on his 100th birthday. Lane flew B-17 bombers in World War II and was a prisoner of war for 15 months. While he was the person of honor, it was also one of the biggest community events that the small rural town had had in many months. Vermont Public Radio's Jane Lindholm and her kids, who live in Moncton, joined the parade and sent back this audio postcard. Oh my goodness. There are so many cars, you guys. Seriously, I think every car in Moncton is here. Every tractor in Moncton is here. Every gator in Moncton is here. Every ATV in Moncton is here. All the hot rods. All the manure spreaders in Moncton are here. He was told that his grandkids and great-grandkids were going to drive by and give him a honk and a wave. And instead... (laughs) This happened. Yep, this happened. Okay, you guys, get ready to say happy Which birthday. one is Roger He's the oldest one there. He's sitting in the seat. Happy birthday! Happy birthday! There we go. Happy birthday! Happy birthday, Roger! Happy birthday! Happy birthday! Happy birthday! Happy birthday! Happy birthday! Happy birthday! From the cup down to the blue car, your large brother. Happy birthday. That's your town clerk. Happy birthday, Roger. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Boy, you know how to throw a party. How many do you think you know of the people who've come by? Oh, gosh. We probably know 90% of them. Ann Lane, daughter-in-law. We were hoping for at least 100. Well, I'm up to 147, so it's amazing. Hi, you old man. Thank you. Happy birthday! Happy birthday, Roger! They please just called yesterday. Wanted to be part of it. Thank you, thank you. Happy birthday, Roger! Here come the sheriffs. Here comes Bristol Rescue. Four fire trucks earlier. A couple of state troopers. And the septic service. We just sold them land. <laughs> what was the final tally? 186. Hi, Mr. Lane. What did this feel like to you? I, I am overwhelmed, I'll tell you. I, I, can't, I can't believe it. It's unbelievable. I didn't realize I had that many friends. <laughs> when did you realize it was more than just your family? About the, about the fourth vehicle that came along, I knew something was wrong. <laughs> oh, 
I can't, I can't, still can't believe this. Took a long time to get here, but I, I guess maybe it was worth it. Hold on, I can't, I just can't explain it. It's too much. This is unbelievable. That audio postcard was produced by Vermont Public Radio's Jane Lindholm from her hometown of Moncton, Vermont. Bees have been under threat. But usually when we talk about colony collapse disorder, we focus on honeybees, what local beekeepers, farmers, and citizens are doing to protect them. Native insects also act as pollinators and play an important role. So this week, Elspeth Hay learns about a simple backyard project that can help increase garden yields and attract different native bee species. A few years ago, Leanne Norjot, a farmer from Harwich, noticed a funny-looking drawing in the Fedco seed catalog. It was a square block of wood, maybe six inches on a side, with different sizes of holes drilled into the front. The caption called it a native bee nesting box. As a gardener, I'm always noticing different types of bees on all the plants. Um, There's so many different types of native pollinators, but a couple of the native species of bees that are really common around here are mason bees and leafcutter bees, and they're the kinds that will move into these nesting boxes. Mason bees get their name from the fact that they cap the end of their nesting tubes with mud. And leafcutter bees do the same thing with cut-up leaves. Unlike honeybees, these native bees live as individuals. They're not part of a bigger colony. So the native bees are looking for long tube-shaped chambers in nature, so something in wood or reeds like bamboo or marsh grass. So if you provide those sites that they're looking for, they will go right to them. And you want to have plenty of flowering plants around with a wide variety of blooming times and also just a wide variety of different types of flowers. When you create this habitat, what are some of the benefits um, from a food perspective? You will get um, increased pollination, so that will help with the quality of the fruit and vegetables, um, the yield, and just the overall health of the plants. Numerous studies have been done on why and how this works. Pollination occurs when pollen from the anther, also called the male part of the flower, moves onto the stigma, or female part, of a flower. This can happen with help from the wind, but bees and other insects are much better at making sure that it happens. When compatible pollen is moved onto the stigma, the plant is fertilized and forms seeds. The more pollen gets on the stigma, the more fertilized the flower is, and the more seeds it produces, which in turn means it makes a bigger fruit. Fruits that haven't been properly pollinated are often small and misshapen. There are some great pictures of this from a study done at the University of Minnesota that we'll share with you on our website. The other exciting thing about attracting native bees for gardeners is that as pollinators, These bees are extremely efficient. It takes about 250 native bees to do the same amount of pollinating as it would take about 10,000 honeybees. They're just hardier bees. So they're flying on days when maybe the honeybees aren't flying. And that includes rainy weather, but also um, season extenders. They're flying earlier in the season and later in the season. It's important to remember that honeybees are native to Southeast Asia. And while they're naturalized here, they're not as hardy in our climate as the true native bees. Leanne has her native bee nesting box mounted on her hoop house. 
She says as long as there's a nesting spot and plenty of flowers, the bees will come. For me, it took a couple weeks at first, um, but pretty much around mid-May, maybe early June, depending on the season, you will start to see some activity. You'll start to see um, the little cells capped off, things that weren't there the day before. Um, so, And it's a pretty good variety, too. You get leafcutter bees and mason bees, all different sizes, so it's kind of fun to watch. Leanne says that because the bees don't have a hive or colony to protect, they tend to be fairly docile, and they make a good introduction to bees for kids. Also, they're safe around sheds and houses. These bees actually don't drill their own holes, so if you do attract them with the nesting boxes, you don't have to worry about them drilling into your house. They're not the carpenter bees. They're totally different. Leanne's making native bee nesting boxes out of fir and cedar because these woods are naturally weather-resistant. But you can also use any kind of log in your yard or natural wood. The one thing to avoid is pressure-treated wood. This could make the bees sick. I've got to say, I'm inspired. I've always wanted honeybees, but I haven't had the time to learn. This is a simple way to attract native bees. And hopefully, get more vegetables and fruit. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Elspeth Hay. Elspeth used a log from her woods and a drill to make a simple nesting site with her daughters. All right, how are we going to do it, Sal? We need our cherry trees, and we need our apple trees to be pollinated, and we're going to drill holes in a log to make the bees home. We'll share a link with tips on attracting pollinators at our website, nextnewengland.org. That story was part of WCAI's Local Food Report. Elspeth also has a blog about local food called Diary of a Locavore. That's it for us this week. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WCAI, WGBH, WSHU, and the Public's Radio. 